Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. This is really a super great pleasure. This topic, um, speaking about Aegis Stein, is you know, among all the things I travel around to speak about, really quite up there at the top. You know, maybe it's the top. My husband asked me just before I left this morning, you know, what's your topic today? I said, you just die. And he said, you know, oh, it's going to be great. Um, he knows how much I, I really love this saint. Um, I'm going to sort of give you a brief introduction to Edith Stein if you don't know anything about her. If everybody feels like we could just skip that, I can move right into <laughs> her thoughts about um, what it meant to be feminine. Um, you know, this is a difficult time to talk about um, gender and identity. And um, kind of what I want to say is I think it's very refreshing. I mean, I have found it so to um, kind of take a pause, avoid sort of the, the current contemporary debates, actually just look at what one, one scholarly woman thought 100 years ago and just kind of reflect on that. And so um, all over the place, I mean, I could just give you the longest list of places. Um, I have found that the, the people are very interested in, in her writings and her thoughts. So for me, it's a really great honor. Um, by and large, I'm going to try to very much sort of, um, I guess I could say, stick to the script. Now, I don't necessarily mean my script verbatim. I do have a script here. But when I say stick to the script, you will get the sense quickly that um, I am giving you a lot of quotations from Edith Stein herself. I'm not, I, I'm not so much interested in paraphrasing for you. Why? Because she's who we are here to, to, to learn about, right? So um, I've been reading and thinking about her thought for a number of years that I don't want to add up. <laughs> but um, I first encountered her as a high school student, um, a wonderful literature professor of mine in, in high school, to whom I think I owe a very deep debt of gratitude, um, kind of walked into the classroom one day with some of her work, Edith Stein's work, and I sort of like, just, I don't think I put it down, I just kind of like dove into it and thought, like, where has this been all my life? I mean, I was 16, so I guess I wasn't waiting that long. But I thought it was just so, it was like water for a, you know, a, in a desert. Um, it, it, for me, it, it spoke to me so deeply, I really felt that she was kind of like a, an older sister or somebody that seemed to understand what what I felt deeply. And I think I, I say that in part because um, um, the organizers asked me at the end to speak a little bit about sort of women in STEM. And I don't know if that's still something you want, <laughs> but we can do that. Um, and I'm conscious that we're at a medical school, medical facility and a school where, you know, the, the sciences and um, are a, such a um, have such an honored place. And so um, I kind of, I'll come back to this in a minute, and actually this will come up a little bit. 
because Edith Stein very much was that sort of a thinker and that sort of a scholar, although in her time in philosophy, which it's difficult for us today, we think of philosophy as like a squishy humanities subject. But in her time, it was not a squishy humanities subject. Actually, I'm not sure that even today it is one, but it's, that's its reputation, is that, you know, sort of there's these hard disciplines that people do that are very abstract and difficult and logical, and then there are these squishy humanities subjects. And I think most people today, mostly lack of knowledge, would put philosophy in the squishy side. <laughs> but in her day, it was not at all in the squishy side. It was considered, you know, really kind of the most difficult, abstract, very logical discipline and, and one had to master very many very challenging um, uh, topics before one could get into the research. So, so she felt very deeply that she was, she, she, um, she understood herself to have a calling that was atypical and, and certainly in her day for a woman. And so she grappled with that. And I actually think a lot of what she ended up saying about um, women's vocations was a fruit of her kind of struggling through that. So, we'll, so without sort of further ado, I'll kind of try to get, take you into this, um, this material and hopefully um, we can emerge in a 30 or 40 minutes and kind of, you can tell me what you'd like to hear more about or you can ask some questions. Um, of course, you can stop me at any time. Um, so let me see, I said I would start by giving a couple of, um, couple of really brief introductions. Um, about Edith Stein. Um, so you know that this is the Thomistic Institute, right? And the Thomistic Institute is um, founded and run by Dominicans. You also perhaps know that um, Edith Stein is a Carmelite, right? She's a Carmelite, so she's not a Dominican saint. Um, but I wanna actually say a couple of things about why it's not a crazy thought to think of Edith Stein as connected to the Dominicans. The way I like to think about it is that Edith Stein's, um, her, her formation as a Catholic, you know that she's a convert, right? Her formation as a Catholic was um, deeply Dominican in spirit, I will say. I say this sort of for two reasons. And the first is that, as I've already mentioned, she was possessed of a very strong philosophical spirit. Um, so many people study philosophy well, I and mean, we could say over the years, many people study philosophy. I don't know how many people still study philosophy today. Um, but there's very few people, I would say, who are so philosophical in their way of thinking about things and their outlook in life, um, so devoted to the intellectual life, we could say, that they are sort of in pain, that it causes them pain to set their studies aside. All right, this is how she was. Um, she was in pain at any distraction from the life of the mind. This is not common. You may know people like this. You may be the sort of person yourself, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's definitely a certain, um, a certain point. Um, so she's one of these rare souls, very, very philosophical. And of course, we, we, we attribute a lot of this to the Dominican order, um, in part because of St. Thomas Aquinas, but many other uh, deeply philosophical persons. After her conversion, her conversion took place, we're actually just sitting around the 100th anniversary, the centenary of her, her conversion, which took place kind of more or less over a, a series of months from 1921 to 1922. Um, so after her conversion, she began to read voraciously in the Christian tradition, in, sorry, the Catholic tradition. And she didn't only just read the mystics, which is where she started. Um, do you know this story about how um, reading uh, Teresa of Avila's autobiography was what really pushed her over the edge. Yeah, so she picked up St. Teresa of Avila's autobiography 
I mean, she was already grappling. I mean, she's a she's a um, a non-devout Jew at this point in time, and she had friends who were Christian and friends who were Catholic and a variety of intellectual friends. But she she stumbled upon, and I don't really know how it ended up in her hands, the autobiography of Saint Teresa of Avila. If you have not read it, move it to the top of your reading list for 2023. Um, it had a great effect on me, but I read Edith Stein before I read the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. But I'm not surprised when you read that, but she, the story goes, she picked it up and she read it all night long. She couldn't put it down. She was completely obsessed with it. And it's not actually that long. If you were really a good reader, you could get through it in probably 12 hours or something like that. And it, as the story goes, she, she finished it start to finish she put it down and she said, this is the truth. And when she got up the next day, kind of thought, I must make some plan towards um, finding out how I could. Now, as you know, she, what does she end up doing? She knocks at the door of Carmel. She wants to live the life of St. Teresa of Avila. She wants to very much to join the, the, the Carmel. Um, but it takes her a long time from that conversion to when she finally is able to enter Carmel. Um, so from the time of her conversion, um, where she began by reading the mystics of our tradition, um, she then began to read systematically through the philosophy in the Catholic tradition, including, of course, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, and she really never left that, even up to the time that she, she died. Um, she died, of course, many years later after being pulled out of the Carmel, transported to Belgium in an, in an attempt to escape um, the fate that was hers. Um, but ultimately, Unfortunately, the Nazis tracked her down with her sister. She was extradited in a sense, brought back to a prison camp and, and executed. Um, depending on my mood, it's very difficult for me to tell that story. <laughs> um, there is another reason though. I said there were two reasons to attach her to the Dominican order. It's not just that she's such a great philosopher and thinker, um, but actually this is kind of a charming piece of her life that maybe you didn't know anything about. Um, after she finished her, not her first dissertation, but her second dissertation, this is in Germany, by the way, so you do a dissertation and then you do a habilitazione. She'd finished her second dissertation, wanted very much to hold a university professorship, but um, she could not. Why? Because she was a woman. All right. So in fact, someone commented on her life later and said, um, in fact, that first she couldn't hold a university position because she was a woman, this is in the 19, early 1920s. And then later she couldn't hold a teaching position because she was Jewish. So really just, you know, there are things like this in the history of the history of the human race. I mean, things that just seem like only God can make sense out of that, right? Such a, such a great evil, right? To be, to, I mean, when you read her writings deeply, you'd think it's a crime that she couldn't teach students at the university. Okay, so what did she do? She couldn't hold a university position after she finished her second dissertation. These were really great works. Um, even her advisor, uh, the famous Edmund Husserl, said, um, if the job of university professor were meant to be held by a woman, absolutely she should hold it. But since it is not, I can't recommend her for a position. I mean, it was, it's, it's galling. Um, also because she spent many of her good years as a student, as a, a, essentially a, um, a research assistant to Husserl. And many people think that without her assistance, his own work would not have been what it was. 
probably true. So, you know, just very galling and, and quite sad. Um, so what did she do? She couldn't hold a university position and teach there at the university. So she actually obtained a teaching position. At this point, she's already uh, converted to Catholicism, which many of her philosoph philosophical friends could not understand. Um, actually, her family couldn't understand it either, right? She came from a devout Jewish family. Um, and another thing you could read is her own autobiography, which is called Life in a Jewish Family, and it's a wonderful work. Um, I'm gonna give you lots of things you could read today. So um, what did she do? Okay, I'm, I'm really like delaying the punchline here. She took a teaching position at a girl's, um, a girl's school, kind of a secondary school, like a high school. Um, you know, given the way standards were, educational standards were in Germany, it, was, it would have been educationally equivalent to like a, a, an early college here. I mean, today, the, the standards. Very high. It was run by Dominican sisters. So she took this position in the town, um, kind of a mountain town of Speyer in, Speyer in, German, in Germany. And um, she spent 12 years teaching um, girls in this kind of academy. It was, it's a pretty elite academy. It's run by Dominican sisters. It's a boarding school. It's all girls. And so she spends a lot of time thinking about, number one, how to educate young women. And number two, she spends a lot of time in incorporating into her life the habits and the rituals of the Dominican order. Why? Because most of the other teachers and the, 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 the life that they live together is Dominican. So she spends 12 years, actually, um, I should double check if it's more years than she spends in Carmel, but it's an awful long time. Um, and so what does she do? She lives the community life with the sisters' daily mass, Liturgy of the Hours, um, devotions to the Dominican saints. If you live in a Dominican convent, of course, you're going to celebrate specially all the Dominican saints. Um, so, so she spends this time, and this time period is very deeply formative for her. You find lots of ways in her letters. There's, she wrote all these letters during that time, and that's also something you can pick up and read. And we could say that in that time in Speyer, which was right after she converted, she think about it this way: she didn't grow up in a Catholic family. Um, so much of the faith is about habits. And um, you could almost look at that time that she spent in Speyer as kind of like being born into a Catholic family because she lives the, the rituals. She lives the, the rhythm of the liturgical year for the first time. Of course, if you enter a convent, you'll do that. But uh, this was really important for her. So I like to say she became habitually Catholic um, with the Dominicans in Speyer. Um, and so I want to say basically that it's, probably not right to give a full appraisal of Edith Stein's life and work without giving proper attribution to the Dominicans. Now, I'm not, you know, a member of the Dominican order, but, um, but I kind of wanted to, I always want to say this because we, we, we just think, you know, quickly about it. We see those many pictures. I don't actually, this is a, a shortcoming. I should have pictures of her in my slideshow. I don't, but we think of her in that, those pictures that you've probably seen in her, in her Carmelite habit. And we sometimes don't remember that she was so deeply formed by the Dominicans. Um, so during that time, she um, now I'm going to point out how that time really ended up um, leading to a lot of the thoughts I'm going to show you today, the things that I'm going to show you today. Um, how does she come around to thinking a lot about what it is to be um, a woman? Um, and then because she's very philosophical, she thinks, well, you know, how do you educate a woman? Well, you have to figure out what a woman's supposed to be before you can figure out how to educate a woman. So she sort of like works through this. It's more like, well, how could we even begin this if we didn't know about this? It's very philosophical. And by the way, she's really great in the sense that, um, or for those of you that are, you know, um, scholars or scholars to be or working on, um, whenever she says, now let's get practical, 
it's not that practical. It's still very, very abstract. Um, so these ideas that she had about what it meant to be a woman, this was not actually a scholarly interest for her. Her philosophical work is not at all related to gender or femininity. Her scholarly work, as you may know, is related to sort of aspects of philosophical psychology. Um, and it's beyond me. I don't, I, I don't know enough to appraise that work in, in philosophy. Um, so I've really just read these other works that she's written. But these ideas germinated in her during those teaching years. It's really where it came from. And eventually they, do, they, they form the basis for these essays and lectures that she gave on questions about women. And they're gathered together. Um, everything I'm going to share with you today is gathered together from these, um, the, the volume two of her collected works, which is called On Woman. Now, just to set the stage uh, finally, um, she was born in 1891. So um, in 1891, it's, a, it's an interesting year for a lot of reasons, but for the students of Catholic social thought here, that's the same year that Pope Leo writes Rerum Novarum. Um, she was born to an observant Jewish family. She was the youngest of 11 children. So if, I mean, if she was waiting around to be born in my family, we wouldn't have gotten to Edith Stein. <laughs> um, she was um, uh, a brilliant student from a very young age. Like her, her scholarly potential was recognized from a very young age. Um, she first studied philosophy in the town of Breslau, the University of Breslau, and then later at Göttingen. And there she studied with the distinguished Edmund Husserl. Um, she earned the doctoral degree, so her first dissertation in 1916, and with the distinction of summa cum laude, it's not easy to do, <laughs> not easy to do. Um, she then began working as Husserl's assistant after finishing her dissertation, um, followed him to the University of Freiburg, where she did lecture occasionally, but as I mentioned, was rejected from holding a university chair. Um, then in the 1918, so two years after her dissertation, she finished her habilitation, which is the second dissertation. Um, and on this second dissertation, Husserl heaped just the highest praise. I mean, he just said like it was like this tremendous towering achievement. He thought it was phenomenal. Um, but as I said, um, even Husserl could not bring himself to recommend her for a university chair. Okay, so this is, um, this is all I wanted to say to sort of set the stage. So what I want to do now is um, really just do what I promised to do, which is tell you something about what she thought about being a woman um, or what it is to be a woman. And again, as I said, for her, this is not her philosophy. This is these are practical thoughts about <laughs> life, you know, life. And the gender question was on the table at that time. Of course, there are many people wondering about education. Um, this is not very long. I think I have a quote from. I probably have a slide here for you from John Stuart Mill. This is not very long after John Stuart Mill writes um, The Subjection of Women, if you know this text. Um, Mill's belief is that more or less because we educate women to be dumb and frivolous, they are therefore dumb and frivolous. Um, so there's a lot of people basically saying, you know, education is the path by which the the things we see in society that seem to be unfortunate differences, education will fix it. And I think she believed that was partially correct and partially incorrect. And I'll kind of, I think I'll highlight some of the things that she thought were wrong about that. Um, okay, so bear with me. I know I'm with an academic group here, but um, as I said, she's, she's never really that straightforward even when she's being practical. So I have to walk you through this. So I'm starting with this teaser line 
where she says that is an ideal image of the gestalt of the feminine soul. So the first thing we have to do is kind of figure out, I'm not giving you that. I'm not giving you the that. I'm going to give it to you in a minute. Um, what does she mean by this gestalt? And, you know, this is where, you know, English and German, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a German scholar, but I, I, I could try to give you a sense of what this means. So what is the that? So let's talk a little bit briefly about what she thinks about the soul, right? Because if we can't think what she means by the soul, we will not get around to sort of what she thinks about the ideal, like how could you have an ideal? And she's, um, she's fairly platonic in this way. Um, so gestalt is usually rendered in English as a kind of shape or a form, but also as a term that refers to an organized whole that is greater than the sum of the parts. It's kind of like an organizing principle in a sense. Um, really closer to what we would say like a spirit. Um, right, so a little bit also like the, the, I said this platonic notion of form um, is closer to what we have in mind. So the idea here is to take the notion of form, philosophical form, meaning like, you know, go back to if you ever encountered these philosophical terms in middle school or high school or maybe even early college, and they said, well, you know, this is a specific table, but you have in mind this, this abstract, like when you see this thing, you call it a table because you, you, you understand the philosophical form of table, right? Someone didn't need to tell you, oh, this is also a table and this is also a table. We have, a, once we understand what a table is, we, we grasp its essence, we say, right? And so this is uh, a little bit. So now, of course, between the, the Platonists and the Aristotelians, there are some differences in how they think about form. But so far, everybody's on the same page, meaning pretty kind of gets, there's a specific table, and then there's the concept of table. But now suppose the concept of table itself, the concept, is kind of a living thing. Okay, now we're getting close to what she has in mind when she says the, the gestalt. Um, okay, so um, let's see, I kind of moved past this. Um, all right, so now if we said, what is the, we have this idea of like the table, the abstract table, right? But now I said, well, it's a little harder because now we want to think about the abstract tableness as something that's growing and changing. Okay, so now think about like, well, what is the like spirit um, or a philosophical form of a tree. Oh, so that's interesting. Like, it's not a stationary thing. It's gonna, like, is the tree in the seedling or sapling form? Is it still the tree? Well, it is still the tree. And of course, an oak tree, for instance, is gonna have all these stages. But we can still, it's, we can still discern that in each of these stages, as the thing is growing, it, it possesses that form, that organizing principle. I've used that word or this term. So this is what she has in mind. Um, so for a plant, we have at least the idea that we can envision a particular plant, but we only, the, the particular plant, we always get it at one moment in time, right? You cannot, this is, oh, if this is a really challenging thing about growth. You never, you never see all the stages at one time. As a mother, this is a very sad thing. That's <laughs> why people take pictures, but it's, it's actually really shocking. You know, you have your children, my children are now mostly your age, but, um, you kind of look at those old pictures and you realize like that little boy that became the man that is now, in a sense, the little boy is dead, right? In a sense, he's, he's not accessible to you anymore. That was a stage. And of course you loved him very much at that stage, but you, you can't hang on to it. Like time marches on, but things that grow change so deeply. So it's very interesting. Okay, 
So we might think about the ideal or the philosophical form of a tree or a person <laughs> at one instance um, as it relates to maturation. Okay, so for, for Edith Stein, maturation is a really interesting concept. Like when do we say the tree is mature? Um, when is peak maturity? When it's now with plants and animals, we have certain biological concepts that help us with this. Um, do we reserve for the philosophical form um, a series of static images because this is how we encounter the thing? First this, then this, then this, right? Instead of the whole organic growth and development. Okay, so if you now wanna think for a second, probably this is not something you woke up this morning and thought about. <laughs> is there a sense in which you are like the tree, but a lot more complicated than the tree? Of course, a lot more dignified than the tree. Because why? Because in the case of the tree, essentially there's an inner spirit that urges its, this is, now I'm gonna use Edith Stein's in, in fact language. Um, I'll just, instead of paraphrasing it, I'll just give you her quote. Just as an inner form resides in the seed of plants, an invisible force that makes a fir tree come up here and a beech tree, that meaning you have a fir seed, you're gonna get a fir tree. Because why? Because there's some, I was kind of, in a sense, our science flattens this, but it's, it's really quite remarkable. You know, like, you never gets to be the case. You plant an oak seedling and you get a, bir a beech tree. I mean, that doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. So what, what makes it do that? Well, that's quite interesting. So she wants to talk about this is what it means for a living thing to have a form. And the form, she believes, is the cause of the thing, the formal cause. That's why we say formal cause in philosophy. So now think about what it would be like um, so you, you see her, her language here, an inner mold set in a human being, which urges to evolution in a certain direction. So why is this more complicated? Well, it's more complicated because we're not, um, we have agency and we can both interior, internal to us and external forces can stunt the natural growth. Does this all make sense? I mean, like you take that tree outside, I'm looking at this dead, well, sort of barren looking tree right now, and I can think like, well, you know, we can talk about what are its conditions for it to flourish into the best kind of whatever that tree is that it could be. I have no idea what kind of tree that is. And you can think like, well, if somebody, you know, shows up at night and, you know, dumps acid on it every day as it's growing, I mean, it will not be the flourishing tree that it should be. So when you see a, a, a mature tree or kind of completed growth in a tree, if there is such a thing, um, you could ask a lot of questions. You could say, has this tree reached its potential, right? And if it hasn't reached its potential, by and large, by and large, the tree could be diseased. It could, the seed maybe, maybe had some, but very often we see like external forces have worked on the tree and stunted its growth. We now we say like sometimes, sometimes it stunted its growth or somehow injured it or something. But what makes the problem of thinking about a mature human being so challenging is because now you've got two kinds of directions of influence. There can be choice from within that makes it harder to reach maturity, but also things from the outside can imperil our growth, right, in various ways. And we can think about this not in relation to what she wants to talk about here, which is gender particularly, or the being a biological male, biological female. I mean, just think about this in terms of like what it means to be a member of the human species. Like, Obviously, there are all kinds of ways in which we could be deprived of nutrients. I mean, you could just use these biological examples, but of course, deprived of love, 
deprived of connection, deprived of all the kinds of things that help us to flourish or to be fully mature. So she thinks this is like a really difficult problem. It is a difficult problem, right? Um, so this is a, so spending a lot of time on the plant example is very helpful because it's, it's how she completely thinks about us as people. And this really helps. So um, let me give you another example of her, um, her um, plant language. She uses these plant languages all the time. So here's another one. Um, and she says, look, this is very tough. And then she says, we're trying to attain insight into the innermost recesses of our being. And we see that it's not a completed being. Like we're looking at ourselves, we're not completed. And, I mean, luckily, I mean, those of you guys, some of you are super young and you're like just starting. And I'm looking around there and there's a few of us here that are all a little bit further down the road. And of course, like, thank goodness I'm not completed, right? Because there's a few more things I'd like to become better at um, and to be better at. So, so she says, well, you look at yourself and you're supposed to sort of ask yourself, like, how mature am I? How developed am I? What stage of the tree am I at? And she says, but you then you see you're still growing. And she says, well, it's really tough. Like there's no, this isn't, it's more like the tree. It's not like the table. I can't just assess it and say, yeah, yep. It's a table. It's another table. It's another woman. No, it's not going to work that way because we're, we're a being that's not ever completed. And we don't encounter in the abstract, like a, an abstract human being. There's no such a thing as that. So she says our being or our becoming does not remain enclosed within its own confines, but extending fulfills itself. All right, this all means something to her, and I'll put more flesh on this in a minute. Um, and it only becomes finally clear to us if and insofar as we put it in the light of eternity. So this is a turn in this passage here. It's very much, you, you can find in her pages over and over, oh, she's reading Teresa of Avila again. Okay, because for Teresa of Avila, this idea of clarity, clarity in the soul is kind of really up there. What does clarity mean? Well, it means that like you are in a sense transparent to yourself. You aren't hiding dust bunnies and you know skeletons in the closet that you're sort of trying to hide from God. So this is this is a, um, a, a Teresa of Avila image, and you see this coming out in in Edith Stein. So here's another example. We will always find fundamentally the compulsion to become what the soul should be the drive to allow the latent humanity, so she might have said the latent, you know, beech tree, it, it's like potential, but that it, it, it's gonna become what it is, um, set precisely in its individual stamp to ripen to the greatest possible perfect will. So again, all this language of fruits and plants, you know, so like you're a fruit and you gotta ripen, you know, and we don't know, like what is the perfect, you know, mango look like or the perfect, you know, I mean, it's like we're, we're kind of struggling with this. Um, but I think in this sense, she's really quite unusual. I don't think this is not very common. I'm not aware of too many other authors that reach for these kinds of analogies. Um, okay, so this piece right here, she says, um, the compulsion to become what the soul should be. Okay, so, well, that's a claim. That's a fairly strong claim, right? That the soul has a should be, that it should become something, or that there's some way we could try to describe what it is to be um, like an ideal of something. Um, so this is her, um, this is her gestalt. The gestalt of the feminine soul is what the soul should be. Now she thinks the compulsion is in there, that 
by virtue of being a female member of the human species, there's some drive to become feminine. But what that is, she wants to put some flesh on that. And it's not at all, I mean, you know, there's some parts of this that are gonna strike you as like in a sense old fashioned and what exactly what you expected. But other parts where, remember who she is, she's somebody who herself understands herself to be very uncommon for a, a, a German Jewish woman in 1920. So she's, um, she's kind of complex. So she says that is an ideal image of the gestalt of the feminine soul. Um, okay, so that's the, the gestalt is, is this thing, what the soul should be. So I'm looking at my notes here thinking, um, I actually, um, I wanted to continue teasing you. I'm not gonna give you the that yet. Um, but I will just quickly jump through one more kind of preliminary before you read her description of what the ideal is. And that preliminary is um, to outline um, what I would call that she has a threefold schema of personal identity. So this is how she thinks about what it is to be a person or human being. She has three things. Um, let me see if, yeah, okay, I'm gonna get this in front of you. Um, she, said, she, she basically thinks, look, if you're a person, you're a human being, um, there are three ways in which you participate in humanity. The first is as a human being, and this is the universal human nature that we all share, male, female, young and old, we all share universal human nature. The end, the telos of that nature, like what it's growing up to be, what it should be in that sense. So this is a very philosophical move, right? Is to, Aquinas does this. There's all these jokes about Aquinas, right? Aquinas says, well, what's, what's the answer to this tough question? He says, well, first I have to introduce some distinctions. <laughs> this is like very Aquinas. Well, in this respect, the answer is X. And in this other respect, the answer is Y. So what she's doing here is a very classical philosophical move. It says, well, in some sense, we're like as men and women were part of humanity. And what's the end or the mature, like what is the perfectly mature human being is someone who's destined for eternities or salvation. Okay, so the end of universal humanity, she says is essentially perfection, human perfection, sanctification. It's attaining the beatific vision and being with God forever. It's what we're made for. And in that sense, there's no distinction between men and women. We're all made for heaven. Then she says, the second piece of, I said threefold, the second piece is our, uh, for lack of a better term, don't think she uses this exact term, our gender identity. Uh, just, it's a useful term. Now, our, our maleness or our femaleness. Um, for her, she's really, if, if we were gonna take apart a lot of the feminist thought, she's definitely in the category of the gender essentialists. <laughs> the people who maybe, like if you're gonna go to one extreme or the other, for her, the extreme she's on is you really are identified with your biological sex. It's really what makes you, you know, specific to the human race. So that's, <clears throat> she thinks that male and female are so different as to be distinct philosophical species. So she really leans into the difference. I know, right? She really leans into the difference. And finally, so I said threefold. So general human nature, male or female, but for her, she puts a lot of work on this number three. So what's number three? Well, number three, she says, and this is what I have behind me, um, is individuality. So 
the first thing, you're a member of the whole human race. The second thing, you're a member of male or female. And the third thing is there's nothing you can generalize. You are just this completely unique expression of a female human being. But the third thing is whatever strange set of things you are is what you are. <laughs> and this is where she says, well, look, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself. And she says, well, look, you know, the third, this individual thing that you have, this is like where you, you might actually, as an individual, male or female, you might actually like do a bunch of things that typically members of the opposite sex do. And so that's where there can be all of this play, um, or, or you know, I guess what I mean is play, like give, like that we're not necessarily dictated by any kind of social gender norms. She doesn't think much of social gender norms actually, because she broke almost all of them. <laughs> all of her friends were male. Um, I mean, I'm trying to go down the list of the things that she broke. She broke almost all of the normal gender norms for her day. Um, now, she didn't think that made her like not a woman. She thought it made her a woman who happened to have an awful lot of like kind of more masculine tendencies in her individuality. This is how she made sense of it. So, um, okay. She also called them individual predispositions, individual gifts. Um, I have this, okay, so it's not possible to generalize about individuality as one might about, you can see the other two categories, perfected humanity or perfected womanhood, okay. Um, couple of other things, and I um, keep my eye on the time here. Um, <clears throat> she, oh yeah, this is a nice quote. She basically thinks, well, how do we know, so I'm now moving back to perfected womanhood, how do we know what, the nature of man and the nature of woman might be. And this is a very classic Edith Stein type of text. What's behind me or in front of, it's all over the room as a matter of fact, you can look in any direction. Um, and she basically says, well, there's lots of ways we can know. She doesn't have, she's kind of a, I think like if you think about her works in general, if you can get past the abstractions, which she has a lot of abstractions, She's kind of a no-nonsense kind of person. She kind of like, she doesn't have a lot of patience for, so she sort of says, look, there's a lot of ways we can know. And now she's referring to perfected maleness or femaleness or womanhood as a calling, as a vocation to become what the soul should be. I'm gonna use her language again. Um, she says, we can find it in the words of scripture. It's inscribed in the nature of man and woman. History elucidates it for us. So she doesn't think history is so perverted as to make it impossible for us to know. Now that was Mill's position. Mill's position was, we have no idea what women are supposed to be because they've been miseducated for so long. So there's not, we, we, we don't even have a place to start. That was Mill's point. So she thought that was extreme and probably not right. She would have been the first one to tell you, we've been educating girls wrong for two millennia. I mean, she thought that we should be teaching all the girls all the things that she was learning um, and a lot more math and science than what they were typically doing. So she was, she's, pretty, she's pretty firm on that. So she says a diversely fibered texture is presented. So in other words, it's pretty complicated, but it's not so complex that we can't see like, oh, okay, here are some things, right? So that we could try to answer this question. Um, and I brought you this quote from John Stuart Mill. I mean, he he's, you know, kind of fun to read if you like to read this sort of thing. You know, and he's standing on the ground of common sense and the constitution of the human mind. I deny that anyone knows or can know the nature of the two sexes. She disagreed with that. She thought that was, you know, ridiculous. 
So this is probably the most succinct expression I can find in her writing. Um, this is probably the best summary. This is not the Gestalt, by the way. This is still, what does she think um, the calling of womanhood is? And then this has to be unpacked. But she says, only the person blinded by the passion of controversy could deny that woman in soul and body is formed for a particular purpose. What is that wife and mother? No, Edith Stein did not get married and did not have any children. Um, so it's important to take from that, what did she really mean by that? And that's where we'll get to this gestalt in a minute. Um, physically and spiritually, she's endowed for the purpose. Endowed, she has these gifts. And then this is the next line that I've underlined here. This is, she's picked on by a lot of strict Aristotelians and Thomists because she has this principle. She says, however, it follows from the Thomistic principle that um, the soul is the form of the matter, anima forma corporis, that such a spiritual characteristic does exist. So she really thinks that there's um, a femaleness to our soul. So this is, again, the Thomists, the Dominicans, <laughs> um, the strict Aristotelians will raise holy hell about this. They think this is very, very wrong. Um, not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Thomistic philosopher, so I'm not prepared to say this is problematic. I think it's really fascinating, and I'm, I'm intrigued to find out whether or not these things can be squared. I think that they can be. Um, I'm married to an Aristotelian philosopher, and so maybe at some point we'll find a way. We'll, we'll get this. We'll, we'll make this something we try to do. But this is my point about her gender essentialism. She doesn't think there's sort of like soul stuff out there that's kind of neutral soul stuff, like animating principles for human beings, and that some neutral soul stuff is injected into a female body, and that becomes a female human being. She thinks there's female soul stuff and male soul stuff, and those get united with matter. And because it's female soul stuff, your body takes on the form of a woman. Now, we're, we're kind of abstracting from how things get made, and of course God is the creator, but for people who think hard about these philosophical forms, she's basically saying, look, matter doesn't give rise to anything. There has to be some philosophical form, some prior. And that thing, that female soul stuff, it has, um, did I just put it up here? Um, I guess I, don't, I can't point, but that a spiritual characteristic does exist. In other words, she knows that she's saying something that's a little bit jarring, that there must be something spiritual about our femininity and not just something biological. That's essentially the most minimal way you can say what she's saying. Here's another example. You can find these all throughout her work. This is a particular work, Finite and Eternal Being, that has nothing to do with gender, really. But this is the kind of thing that she would have said if humans rank above the lower creatures because as spirit they imitate God, their generative power, that is a, that's a catchphrase. Generative power means our sexual differentiation as males and females must be rooted in the spirit, she wants to say. There must be some root, some spiritual root of the difference between men and women. So that's what she's getting at. Okay, so let me get, let me get you around now. This is the gestalt. I finally brought you back to the gestalt. So when she said that is an ideal image of the gestalt of the feminine soul, now at the end of the talk, I'm finally getting you around to what that is. And this is what that is. So when she says women are 
what the soul should be. What is the thing we're aiming at? Or she thinks we ought to be aiming at. I mean, maybe we aren't aiming at it, but she thinks we ought to be because she thinks there's some urging force inside of us impelling us to go in this direction. What does she think the direction is? Well, this is what she thinks it is. So what you find here is essentially a list of the things she thinks are necessary to be, um, to have the posture of, of, I could say maternal care for the souls entrusted to us. So I've said that in the most general possible way. So she thinks that what women always do, whether we know it or not, is that we try to nurture and look to the whole development of other persons and even of projects that are the concern of persons. So of course that has some kind of biological analogy, right? If you conceived a baby in your womb, your body will grow this baby. Um, without you, I mean, you know, actually it's kind of remarkable. You can abuse yourself in lots of ways and your body will still kind of prioritize the life of the baby up to a point. So it's a, it's a, the point is it's a very strong activity of the female body capacity. But she thought, well, this is just the beginning of it. This is one thing we can do. But she thought, well, actually when women go out in the world, when they're with their friends, when they're with colleagues, um, their orientation to reality is, is maternal and nurturing what she thought. And so she thought, well, even if we didn't intend on it, you know, we might show up at work and sort of be looking at people's development in ways that um, might even surprise ourselves. She says that a lot. Okay, so, so just to work through this, the soul of a woman should be open to others, so expansive and open, so sense of openness. Um, quiet so that weak, small flames would not be extinguished. In other words, it should be... Um, essentially kind of calm and able to shelter young, young life. Um, warm, so as not to um, imperil, like, er, like fragile buds. Now, what is she thinking of? She's thinking of the way frost on the ground. You see the plant imagery again? She's thinking of the way that frost um, ruins a young plant. You know, if you can get, you get the timing wrong with the respect to the weather. Um, Clear, this is this thing from St. Teresa of Avila, clear, the soul should be clear so that no vermin will settle in dark corners and recesses. Of course, vermin is, you know, like, like pests and, you know, bad things in the corner of your soul. Again, it's right out of St. Teresa of Avila. Um, Self-contained, she thinks there's a kind of like, a kind of dignity that, that a, a mature woman, in order to do this work of nurturing, has to be healthy and fairly strong in a sense. So that's what she means by self-contained. I'm not sort of spilling my guts every place where I can't um, focus on what's in front of me. Um, and this is an interesting one. Empty of itself, essentially, like a, it's, it's not narcissistic. It's self-contained, so it has dignified presence, but it isn't always talking about itself. Why? Because someone always talking about themselves no one's gonna come to you and say, hey, can we talk about me? <laughs> right, like, hey, I have a problem, can we talk about me? You're kinda like, oh, you're kinda done. You're, you've got a lot of yourself there, right? So, so empty of itself in order that other or extraneous life could have room in it. So others in need could find a re like a respite or a refuge in your soul. These are beautiful images, right? And then I do love this phrase, mistress of itself. Like, this is, of course, um, this language, which you can really find this in the liberal tradition, um, the language of um, self-mastery, 
So of course we have this language of mistress, but basically in charge of oneself. Not so, you know, not so um, slack or lacking discipline that you might say to yourself, I mean, you can kind of see this in some, you know, well, it'd be really nice to take care of that, but I, I, do, I don't have enough discipline. You, you hear this all of the time, right? Sometimes people say this about their animals. Um, sometimes people say this about their plants. I can definitely say that my plants get neglected sometimes. But mistress of itself and also of its body, so that the entire person is at the disposal of every call. If it's hard to sort of see what she's getting at, you think about like um, an infant, right? It's not super easy to get up every two hours in the middle of the night to respond to an infant. But she, again, she wants to say that this is sort of the whole orientation. Well, um, you know, like I had a student call me on the way up here wondering about his coursework. You know, like, okay, to, but okay, <laughs> we could talk you through this. I mean, so that you have to be sort of in charge of yourself and disciplined enough that you can respond to the needs. Because, well, a student is one thing, but like those young kids or your dog or whatever it is that you're taking care of, if you're such a mess that you still sort of need to be parented, <laughs> it'd be very hard to nurture somebody else, right? So it's, it's not saying anything completely shocking, and yet I do sort of want to. I am intentionally highlighting the ways that you hear people today almost celebrate that they're not ready to take care of somebody else. Do, do you hear this a lot? I mean, I do. <laughs> I'm not even ready to, you know, I can't handle that. I'm not ready for children because I can't. Um, so she, yeah, so she's, in a sense, she's agreeing with that proposition. Um, but she's saying what, but what we should be aspiring to get there. We should definitely be not like, well, it'll come when it comes, but like, how do I become that kind of person? Because wouldn't it be really great to be the sort of person that people go like, oh, but for, but for knowing her, I wouldn't have known who I was. So that's her image. Her image is what women are up to in, in whatever state in life they're in, various, I mean, she didn't, she actually said, there's no profession a woman shouldn't have. Now she did say there were some professions sort of more obviously suited to women, but she didn't think there was anything that should be like totally off limits if your individuality called you to it. But she thinks the gift of mature womanhood is to help others become what they should be. And so that others would, by virtue of knowing you, think, you know, thank gosh I knew her because I wouldn't know who I am. But knowing who I am is necessary, why? So I can repeat the favor. I mean, it's this kind of generative approach to thinking about what it means to be a human being, which is a pretty neat idea, actually. It's, it runs completely against any kind of like, you know, we could now we could refer back to John Stuart Mill, any kind of, you know, reductive, like kind of cold individualism, right? The essence of maturity is not being independent from other people. The essence of maturity is to help others become mature so they can help others become mature. And why? So that, go back to that first category of human, um, the first category of human calling, the most important one, we all become saints. We can all go to heaven. So that what we're fundamentally involved with as human beings in the world is a generative process. And we each take different aspects of that generative process. I have not talked to you about what she thought about the male side of this picture. Depending on my audience, sometimes that's of real interest to people. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to go there. But if you wanted to do it in question and answer, we can do that. Um, but this is a really, I think, attractive and also kind of mysterious presentation of a certain view of human life. 
in which um, what we do is a little bit more secondary to what we are. That's, I think, how she would have put it. Um, so you might be doing, I don't know, like you might be, like I'm a college teacher, you might be cooking for your kids, you might be a construction worker, whatever it is that you might do, your profession is your worldly vocation. But that, that is actually um, going to be, if you are mature, it is going to be very much shaped by your participation in the generative nature of human life. In other words, you're, whatever it is you're gonna be doing it, you're gonna be doing it as a woman. And that shouldn't bother you. I mean, that shouldn't like, that shouldn't be an obstacle. It should be like, well, what is the thing, what is the, now to use John Paul II's term, like what is the genius about this that I can lean into? You know, now like we're all realists. I mean, we like, there are probably gonna be some types of things where we say, so it's pretty tough to figure out like <laughs> what the specifically female way of doing this thing might be. But she really thought that it wasn't so much about a way of doing something, but about a posture of being. And that you could sort of try to ignore that you have this posture, but that it's not a good idea because it's gonna be there. It's this inner force. And so you could sort of fight with yourself and try to pretend like you weren't you know, a woman, but that that was probably not gonna lead to that full, beautiful maturation. So given the time, I will stop there um, and I can tack on some comments and some thoughts really. I've, I've touched on a little bit of how she thought about, um, you know, I guess I would say fields of study which are more um, technical because, you know, logic and philosophy is extremely technical and she did a lot of that. Um, she had very specific comments about women's education, particularly in relation to the maths and the sciences. So I can, I can definitely lean into that a little bit as well. But for the general portion of the talk, I will wrap it up here um, and let you tell me what you'd like to hear more of. Yeah. About the arts, is it? Yeah, so, okay. So she thought that, um, so first of all, the main comment that I mentioned, she, she has an essay on um, the ethos of women's professions, which is it's a great essay. And that sits alongside in that volume, another essay called The Separate Vocations of Man and Woman. And if you take those two pieces together, you will find her essentially insisting that, um, that there aren't any professions that women should consider like off limits, number one. She did not think that society should make them off limits. So at that time, that was a question. And obviously she was a victim of it, right? So she did think that there were certain things that on account of their being more abstract, and I'll get to why she thinks women are drawn to less abstraction. She thinks women are drawn to more um, integrative work. She thought that if you just sort of let people be free to follow, like to, you, gave, you gave them great education and then you gave them the opportunity to develop their individual proclivities and gifts. She did think it was less, like, less likely to be the case that you would see lots of women going into the more abstract fields. Um, but she doesn't, she doesn't call that a principle. It's more just like her, her sense of things. So she, she thought essentially you give women, now I'll get in a minute, I'll tell you what she means, what she means by a good education. So she says that, okay, education, 
the younger you are, the more it should be general, sort of meaning, well, the Greeks thought this too. They, I think the Greeks thought that you were kind of neutral, <laughs> like that you actually weren't a male or a female. I mean, they, they did, but they kind of thought you were sort of neutral until you were, I don't know, eight or 10 or something. So she thought that more or less it was into the years of puberty when the gender differences are starting to emerge that you should start to think specifically about education to um, both complement but also um, push back on both the strengths and the weaknesses of each gender. So she thought that women in particular, she wrote a lot more about women because that's what she think about. She thought women in particular um, were suited to abstract thinking. So for her, math, logic, things like this. Um, but she's thought that they, it often, number one, it requires a kind of dedicated focus and time. And she thought that women struggled with this, young girls especially, because they are so social that they don't want to do five hours of study because they want to talk to somebody. So she thought, number one, if you just give in to that, women will never acquire those gifts. So she thought, well, you have to look at young girls and think, yep, this is going to be hard for you, harder maybe than the boys, but you need to have it. Like it's, it's medicine that counteracts your tendency to want to be so chatty that you never sit down and... So she thought that it was corrective against a kind of weakness that women had. When I say that women are so social, she meant that what? Well, that what we're inclined by nature to be interested in is people. Now, if you do a little bit of study into like the psychology of babies and you sort of, you sort of see these things, they're, they're statistical patterns, right? They're not universals. But you see, and I've had a lot of babies, um, <laughs> that little boys are a lot more interested in pushing stuff around and little girls are a lot more interested in looking into your face to the point where they'll grab your face and like look, you know, kind of like, look at me, mom, you know. Um, you know, again, these are statistical patterns. They're not, they don't account for every person. But um, so she basically thought that that thing you can see in a, in a baby girl kind of exhibits itself throughout the educational years, and in a time when, in fact, um, in fact, our our mind, like the time when we can acquire language quickly, is also the time when we can acquire um, these technical skills quickly. She thought we had to be really careful not to just let girls do the thing that they want to do, which is like look in everybody's faces and chatter, chatter, chatter. So we we should push back on that. Now, again, I, I don't want to just pick on the women here. She has all kinds. She she thinks the guys have similar strengths and weaknesses that need, and she thinks that's the purpose of education, to, to take the strengths that you have and orient them towards being most fruitful, but to take your weaknesses and improve on them. So she thought women had the aptitude and that if they were so inclined, they should be given the resources to develop those aptitudes. Um, she did think that some professions by nature of being more nurturing, more Nurturing, let me just move from nurturing to this principle by which a woman looks to the maturation of others. Nurturing is what that kind of means, but I think it's, it's a word that's a little um, laden. She thought that things like teaching were going to be good fits, for lack of a better word. I mean, it's like, but she didn't think women should be, you know, 
prevented from doing other types of things. She just thought it was going to be a good fit, that lots of women would, if left to their own inclinations, would enjoy teaching a lot. So she thought teaching, medicine, nursing, like all of the kinds of things, social working, the kinds of things which look to the development of others, she believed that that would be like a very good fit for a lot of people. But because of this third thing where she thought there was this weird thing where, you know, you just might be who you are and who you are might be really different. Um, she didn't think that we should be required to be teachers or required to be doctors or nurses or people looking at the development of others professionally because she thought even if you were, you know, like a biomedical researcher that spent most of your days in a lab looking at protein folding or something, that who you were as a woman was still going to come out, that it was, your posture was still going to be feminine. Um, and that might come out through the relationships you had with your colleagues. It might come out through how you envision the purpose of your work. You know, seeing, thinking about your work as, as affecting and helping people. I mean, there were all kinds of things she kind of hit on, you know. So, um, so I think those are the two things to recognize that she didn't believe that people, that women should be prevented from pursuing things that they had gifts for and, and interest in. Uh, she did believe that a lack of education had prevented women from discovering often what their gifts were and what their individual proclivities were. Um, but finally, she did think that we have to be realistic that many women for a significant portion of their lives were going to want to raise children. She said this many times. She really deeply loved and admired her mother who had 11 children. Um, they had a difficult relationship because her mother didn't, um, didn't really understand why she needed to get so much education. Um, wondered why she didn't just settle down and get married. <laughs> um, then was very depressed when she converted to being a Catholic. Um, but it's very clear she really deeply loved her mother and she was the baby of the family. Right, so think about that. They're really close, you know. They were really, really close. She describes take, she, she she describes visiting her mother in her mother's old age and like washing her feet and bathing her when she couldn't bathe herself and things like that. So, you know, she's a really complex character who, although she sort of lives most of her professional life with men in a male field, the time is a very male field. But she goes home and sees her mother and bathes her and and talks about how how important it is to, to, to honor the flesh that gave rise to her being. It's really, she's really, it's remarkable. Um, yeah, so that's, so that's probably run on too long, but that was, that's what she thought. Other things, go ahead, yeah. Did she have any um, ideas, uh, thoughts on the roles, the distinct roles of a parent, male and female? Mm -hmm. or mentor, male, female, yeah. in the development of um, a personal philosophy. Mm -hmm. Let's extend it to male children as well as yeah. females. Um, okay, so your question is um, the different kind of parenting, maybe, right. in relation to, yeah. yeah. So um, I can't think of a passage where she describes exactly that. But if I'm inferring from what she said about the development of girls, she certainly thinks that um, a tremendous amount of role modeling is, is, is necessary. Okay, so there's this phrase that's actually often misquoted that she says, where she says that children in school don't need what we have, they need what we are. 
and it gets misquoted a lot. There's a fuller bit to it. But what she meant was they need examples of mature women and they need examples of mature men to become men. So, and to become, so I'm inferring now, kind of backing it out. She, um, she didn't talk very much about parenting per se. She talked a lot about the educator. So she's somebody that um, probably if I were just to um, guess, because I have to guess where she didn't write about stuff, she would have had to think really hard about the kinds of things that we think not hard about at all, like homeschooling. That would have not have been, a, this is, these are, she's really very German. She's so German that her essays on the German state are a little bit hard for me to read. Because <laughs> until, you know, until the Third Reich becomes really what it is, Germans really love Germany. Right? And Jewish Germans really love Germany. I mean, I say this because the German, um, one, of the, one of the glories of Germany and, and really Central Europe at that time was its education system. So it didn't occur to her very much to think about how parents could she really was thinking about schools and educators because that's what they did. So she thinks very seriously that essentially um, girls and young boys need to have examples of matureness. So if, if, if you didn't have teachers who had this kind of self-mastery and clarity and warmth, you were gonna get young women who didn't understand, they didn't get it. So she thought that was very important. And certainly, I, I, I'm just inferring, she would have thought the same thing about, about maleness. Now, the key thing that she thought was different about men, not the key, I mean, it, now this is like, I'm reducing it really small. But she basically thought that the first orientation of the masculine temperament or the masculine gift was to, um, she used to say objective achievement, but she also would say the mastery of some part of the world in a, in a kind of objective sense. So she thought that men and women, she thought that women were more integrated on account of their capacity to bear life inside of them. She thought that men, if you have, if like if you're a mother of boys, this makes you laugh. She thought that men found it much easier to view their bodies as a tool. Isn't that a funny fit? It's a very funny phrase. But what she means is um, men find it easier to separate like what they're doing from who they are. She thought that women found this really challenging. She actually highlights how it's women who are obsessed with like work-life balance. She says, the men don't ever ask the question. She says, but obviously they have tensions too. And she thinks they don't care as much because they're not as oriented to a kind of unity of life. She thinks women are more dependent, like we're bothered more by a lack of unity. Like it bothers us. And she's not saying it's not right to maybe split our time, but she thinks we're bothered by it more. And why? Because she thinks men are just, they're more oriented to, yeah, like, you know, go climb that mountain, go chop down that tree, like objective achievements that you can, like, that don't relate necessarily to the maturation of another soul. Right, so think about that. So, so yeah, I think, but she, I think would have, would have written many books about, if she had done this, about, because this is how she did it for women. She would have said, well, these are all the things that, like if you're, sort, if you're the sort of person who from birth, as a woman, you're really interested in people. Well, she says, well, what are the ways that could go wrong? She says, I could go right like this. Well, how can that go wrong? You're interested in gossip. 
you want to like talk about other people's personal lives all the time in a way that's not fruitful. She says, now it's good if you're, you know, like, I don't know, you guys have siblings or people that are close to you and, and, and every three days they call you and they got to tell you the latest development. That's probably good. <laughs> but of course it could go wrong. You're like obsessed with the royal family and you don't know them at all. <laughs> Why did that occur to me right now? I don't know. But, you know, this way in which women can be, you know. But so, so she had all this stuff. Well, look, it's a strength that we are capable of knowing another person so intimately that we could feel their successes as our successes and their failures very keenly. She says, that's an amazing gift that women have, but it comes with this potential weakness. So the educator tries to form the weakness and encourage the strength. And I think with men, she would have said the same thing. Look, if you're oriented towards these objective achievements and a certain kind of abstraction, well, you need to sort of role model for young men. Well, what does it look like to do this? Oh, that's great. But what does it look like to have mastery as a man, mastery of yourself? Probably need to, because this can go off in terrible directions. No. Big bombs blowing up people in cities looks like a tremendous achievement. <laughs> well, maybe, you know. I mean, so she would have probably touched on those things. So I'm inferring a little bit because she didn't write specifically about parenting. Now, I would also mention just because I have to, I think, without, I don't want to be dishonest. She really didn't think you could be a great educator of women, or I assume of men either, if you were not in touch with your, um, your religious vocation. That, that the perils of growth as a person um, could not be managed in a secular way. That remember this image of the tree and then this image of the person as being much more complicated than the tree. Why? Because we make these choices. Well, she thought you needed the light of grace to make or to be able to have insight into the right way to grow. So she really didn't think that education that was not religious was true education. On that point, I think she's kind of, she's quite different from some of the other feminist writers of her time. And, you know, you, we can argue whether she's a feminist or not. That's a, but yeah. So I had to mention that. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.